This episode of EMS One Stop is brought to you by Lexapol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. Hello and welcome back to another edition of EMS One Stop. I'm your host, Rob Lawrence, and... We're going to continue our international theme this week. Uh, last week, if you were listening, I had a great conversation with uh, US-based Ron Duckworth and the inimitable, the one and only Dr. Linda Dykes. And uh, we talked a lot about uh, community paramedicine. We talked about the demise of the ET3 program in the US. And she also highlighted a, a system and an organization and an agency in the UK that are doing great things. And that organization was the Welsh Ambulance Service NHS Trust. So I immediately jumped on the phone, jumped on all the airwaves and tracked down their chief executive to come and talk to us this week. So we have another international international edition. So I'd like to welcome my guest this week, uh, the uh, chief executive of the Welsh Amulet Service Trust, Professor Jason Killens. Welcome, Jason. Hi, Rob. Good to see you. Good. First of all, I have to congratulate you because uh, His Majesty the King, uh, recently uh, crowned, had his uh, honours list. And uh, this is a very peculiar British thing. But of course, uh, His Majesty named you in his first honours list and bestowed upon you a King's Ambulance Medal. So congratulations. Thanks, Rob. We, he did indeed. But of course, it's, um, you know, it's recognition of years worth of uh, support uh guidance and counsel from colleagues uh, across nearly three decades of service. So uh, I'm grateful to His Majesty, but of course, it's part of recognition for those that have supported me along the way too. That's fantastic, Jason. And I wouldn't have expected you to say anything else. And you're quite right. And obviously, it's for everybody uh, for, for that, for that honour. So let's uh, sort of start off with uh, a bio from you. I thought I was an international traveller. And then, of course, for full disclosure, we've known each other for a long, long time. Uh, we were both operations directors, would you believe, back in the back 20 odd years ago in the UK and uh, I went off uh, and went west you went elsewhere so give us your backstory Jason yeah sure so I mean I joined the ambulance sector in in the UK in London uh, in February 1996 I was an emergency medical technician uh, on the streets in East London uh, responding to 999 calls to emergency calls here for about you know three or four years and uh, after that I came off the road and went into you know, kind of middle uh, management roles. And I finished after 20 years with the London Ambulance Service, as you say, as Executive Director of Operations in September 2015. Uh, I went slightly further afield than you and went to Australia uh, for three years uh, as Chief Executive of the South Australia Ambulance Service. So that's one of the state services uh, in, in Australia uh, and was there for three years. And then I returned to the UK uh, in uh, September 2018 to this job uh, here in Wales, uh, where I've been the chief executive now for, well, just about five years uh, next month. I also want to take us back to, there was a point on the Gold Coast in Australia where our paths crossed and uh, you, were with, you were with London and uh, you were doing the one thing that America now has its eye on to source medics. And that was you were in Australia with a team from the London Ambulance Service recruiting Australian paramedics and uh, I think that was very successful it was and it's I mean it's something that actually the London Ambulance Service continue today uh, I mean when when I left in 2015 we'd been recruiting internationally for as you say from Australia for probably three years at that point uh three or four years at that point uh and we had had 
uh, we've recruited about 500 uh, people from Australia to come to London specifically uh, work with us in our in our emergency uh, ambulance workforce. We were doing that because I guess for two reasons. One, one was that there was um, a, a shortage of paramedics in the UK. We were growing quicker. Uh, you know, organisations were growing quicker than our universities could produce paramedics for us. And secondly, we knew that the Australian market was rich. Uh, with paramedics that weren't securing jobs uh, in the state ambulance services there because there was an oversupply coming out of the universities. So it's a great opportunity for those individual paramedics to work internationally, to be supported, to do that, to develop and grow their careers in a different system, uh, but also you know, to help patients uh, in the UK and particularly in London with uh, providing better services. And that's certainly a model, as I said, that uh, some organisations in the US are following. Some of our, our bigger ambulance companies have cracked the immigration piece. Of course, what we have to do here is to demonstrate that the incoming person professional isn't taking the job of a US citizen. And uh, what we know right now here in the US is that uh, we have uh, a massive shortage of paramedics uh, or in the wrong locations, shall we say, and therefore that's probably easier to demonstrate. And so, uh, um, you know, people may come and go, hang on a second, you did it, how do we do it? So uh, stand by for the phone to ring on that one. Um, and of course, if you have been following the EMS One Stop series out there, everybody, uh, I had the team from Team Australia EMS who have been assisting uh, Australian medics find placements in the US as well. And so go back and look at that. However, in the UK, and of course, this is where, Again, Americans need some translation because we've got England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, uh, Northern Ireland, the United Kingdom, Great Britain, British, English. Where does Wales fit into all that? All right. Well, let's help out with that. <laughs> let's so do a United lesson. The <laughs> United Kingdom is made up of uh, four countries. Uh, so England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. That's what makes up the United Kingdom. Um, in uh, England, there are 10 ambulance services, 10 regional ambulance services in the NHS or as part of the NHS in England. But in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, there is one national ambulance service for those three for those three nations. So the governance is different. Um, you know, I've got a direct relationship with government uh, and with the health minister of the devolved government here, here in Wales. And that's the same in Northern Ireland uh, and in Scotland. Whereas in England, those 10 services, 10 regional services report through uh, an NHS body, NHS England, uh, into government. So different structures, uh, but one ambulance service in Wales, uh, 10 in England. So what is the population and the area that you're serving, Jason? Well, I mean, we've got about three and a half million people, uh, residents in, in Wales. Obviously, there's a transient population, particularly in the summer with, uh, you know, people on holiday going to coastal areas and so on, uh, particularly in the in the West and, uh, and in North Wales. And, um, and don't forget, they're all going to Wrexham from America now, by the way. Well, they are all going to go to Wrexham. <laughs> we've got a connection with Wrexham. We've got an ex-player, actually, from Wrexham, who's one of our operational managers uh, with, with us now. So we've got just a little bit of a connection. Excellent, with excellent. But, um, yeah, so... Uh, uh, three and a half million people uh, across the uh, across Wales, across the country. That the geographical size is you know, significant. It's much smaller, I have to say, than I had in Australia. Um, but we've got you know urbanised areas in four cities. Uh, we've got you know rural communities and also some very remote communities, very small remote communities, certainly in, in mid Wales and up in up in uh, in North Wales, which you know are particularly difficult to access. So we've got the full mix of, I guess. Um, communities to serve here and that adds additional complexity uh, to, to the role 
And, and and again, my commentary for for our US friends listening is that uh, that doesn't sound like many ambulance services, but they are very large services compared to that in the US. When I looked last, Jason, I think we counted fifteen fifteen and a half thousand registered ambulance services companies, fire departments that do EMS. Uh, and so, you know, that's a lot. And some of them are actually quite small. So in terms of economy of scale, that, you know, the UK, the Australian systems actually might have it right. Um, that's probably a discussion for a whole nother day. Let's talk about the, the National Health Service. And again, to sort of do some translation, uh, of course, in the UK, healthcare is free at the point of delivery. What does that mean? Yeah, and that's one of the attractions of it. And and indeed, Rob, that's something, one of the things that drew me back, you know, here to the UK from Australia, because many people said to me, why did you come back from Australia as an expat, you know, on the beach, barbecues every day? <laughs> right. um, why did you come back, back to the UK? And, and that's one of the things that drew me back. But the NHS, founded in 1948, uh, by uh, a health minister, actually a Welsh health minister at the time, a chap called Aniram Bevan. Um, uh, and as you say, its founding principle is that healthcare is free at the point of delivery. Every bit of healthcare is free at the point of delivery uh, for citizens uh, across the United Kingdom. Uh, ambulance services are part of the NHS. Well, that's a much more recent feature. They weren't in 1948. They were run by local councils, local authorities many, many years ago. Uh, and, and over time, ambulance services have come together, as you say, into larger, uh, bigger organisations with a bigger geographical footprint and those economies of scale. So we've got 14 now uh, um, across the UK. Uh, sorry, 13 now across the UK. Um, and the NHS, we are part of the NHS, but we also straddle the emergency services you know, a group too. So with police, Coast Guard, Mountain Rescue, fire services and so on. So we've got a, a kind of foot in both camps. So it's absolutely right we're part of the NHS because most of our work, as will be the same in the US, you know, is a single patient episode of care about providing care to patients. But of course, we work very closely with police and fire, particularly on about 10% of the work we go to. Uh, so it's right we also maintain good relationships with the emergency services you know, group as well. And again, to, to do a little bit of sort of US translation that uh, fire brigades or fire departments aren't, ne aren't necessarily associated with medical first response. And so that's uh, probably the exception in, in the UK rather than the rule. That's right. So there are some fire services here in the UK that provide uh, immediate medical response as, as co or first responders, but they're in addition to the ambulance service, which is entirely separate. So uh, here we've got fire services that respond to uh, at some of our low acuity work, so not injured fallers, say, uh, and there are also fire services across the UK that respond to uh, Category 1 or, or, or higher priority calls such as cardiac arrests, but they don't routinely respond um, uh, to the full suite of work uh, and they certainly don't do it on their own. They're always in addition to uh, an NHS ambulance response. So in terms of your own service, then, uh, obviously, you've mentioned you've got urban, you've got rural, and actually you've got some fantastic mountains. I've climbed a few of them myself over, over the time. Uh, how are you geographically organised and dispersed? Well, we've got uh, a number of regions. We, we split our operation into a number of regions across Wales. There are seven health boards uh, across Wales, and we mirror those geographical footprints. Um, uh, we've got about 110 stations, 110 ambulance stations across Wales, three what we call clinical contact centres for our 999 emergency service. 
uh, and a number of regional kind of administrative uh, headquarters uh, uh, across Wales too. Um, an organisation of about 5,000 staff all up, 700 vehicles uh, operating uh, all of the emergency 999 service, uh, all of the uh, non-emergency patient transport, uh, so planned you know, clinics, appointments and so on. Uh, we also operate 111, which here in the UK is a non-urgent um, uh, advice line uh, or non-emergency advice line for the public to secure or access uh, uh, advice about their condition. So we operate that nationally too. That's excellent. And also another piece that's very familiar to US listeners is helicopter emergency medical services. And there's a completely different model in the UK and one which I would rather have. And that they're all uh, in the main, I think, unless things have changed, charity based. So it's all done through uh, citizen contribution. Uh, There's no uh, massive uh, follow up bill uh, unless things have changed. And, uh, And I'm guessing you have a service similar to that in Wales. We do. Uh, so here in Wales, we, again, as you say, mo- most of the uh, helicopter emergency medical services provided and uh, funded by charitable donations. There is some NHS contribution to it here in Wales. Uh, a number of aircraft operate from three bases uh, across the country, 24-7, uh, where they can't fly. They respond uh, in vehicles you know, by road um, uh, and part, as you say, part funded by charity, uh, part funded by the NHS, we host in our control rooms, in our contact centres, their activation desks, you know, so their triage and activation desks. Uh, so very closely, you know, connected, but they are separate services to the uh, traditional ambulance service here in the UK. Excellent. So getting into the kind of meat of the discussion, Jason, the, 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 the clinical services that uh, you are providing, Um Let's start with the with the call center then. Uh, you know the, the beauty, and you probably found the same of going to work in another country, is the three digit number and the way the call is processed is fairly similar. So that's fairly fairly yeah. recognizable technology. In fact, going from the, the east of England to Richmond, Virginia, the CAD system was the same. The telephony was the same. The 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 Q and A the the the, uh, the pro sorry the pro QA was yeah. the same. Uh, you know, albeit in a different accent. Uh, and so when I call 999 in the UK, what happens to me? Well, pretty much the same as it does in the US, Rob, as you've described. Um, so you'll be connected, you call 999 or 112. Uh, you can use the European number here. Ah, of course. Yeah. Um, you will be put through to a, uh, a British telecom uh, operator and they'll ask you which emergency service you want, police, fire, ambulance, coast guard. You'll say ambulance, you'll be connected to the nearest uh, ambulance service based on the telephone exchange which you've connected to, or if you're on a mobile phone, it'll be to the nearest, to the cell site that you've connected to. Uh, And you'll be asked the same questions as you would in the US. We use uh, MPDS here and ProQA. Some ambulance services in the UK use a different product called NHS Pathways. The clinical triage process is slightly different, but essentially it's the same basic process Priority, priority or address, telephone number, priority symptoms, um, advice for over the telephone if that's necessary prior to arrival, um, and dispatch based on priority uh, of the assessment. And so the disposal then of the patient, to use that as a polite term, is either an ambulance or some sort of uh, well 
further treatment, of, further, n- further interrogation. So, so it could be a traditional ambulance, could be a traditional road ambulance. Of course, we've already discussed air ambulance. There could yep. be an air ambulance as well. Uh, but increasingly here uh, in Wales and in, in other services across the UK, yeah, you could see uh, a disposal which uh, includes telephone advice by by uh, either what. Uh, telephone or or video triage and advice uh, from our uh, clinicians in our contact centres. They could be either nurses or paramedics. Uh, They're using uh, the sister product to MPDS, uh, which is called ECNS, uh, to uh, undertake that um, that assessment process. And we're closing now here in Wales about 15% of all of our emergency calls every day by way of telephone or video consultation without turning a wheel and sending an ambulance. If we do respond to scene, uh, it could be a traditional ambulance or increasingly uh, it could be what we call an advanced paramedic practitioner. So that's uh, an experienced paramedic who's got a degree, who's gone on to master's education, Uh, And if they complete that education full time, it's a year. If they do it part time, it's three years. Um, And those advanced paramedic practitioners with a master's degree, uh, increasingly, we're seeing a non-conveyance rate, some 35 to 40 percent higher than a regular paramedic crew. So what that means is that we're able to safely close off episodes of care in the community not respond with a double-staffed ambulance, not convey the patient to the emergency department, where, of course, we know that if they present at the emergency department, there's a higher likelihood of admittance. Um, And once they're admitted, uh, there's a higher likelihood that they're going to get stuck in a bed uh, and it's going to be a delayed discharge, which creates all sorts of other difficulties. So um, we are essentially transforming the way we deliver our service here in, in Wales, looking to tip the service model on its head Essentially, instead of responding to the majority of 999 calls, emergency calls we receive every day, we want to flip that. So we only go to those patients who really, really need a double staff paramedic emergency ambulance quickly. Car crashes, broken legs, falls from height, you know, those those kind of things, cardiac arrests and so on. Uh, And the rest we would service either by way of uh, telephone or video advice upstream with clinicians in our contact centres or with advanced practice clinicians in the community. Of course, many of those advanced practice clinicians also then go on to be independent paramedic prescribers, offering us other opportunities uh, to close more patients safely in the community. So that's exactly what I hoped you would say, Jason, and those are exactly the lessons that we need to pay attention to here in the US. And I want to drill deeper into those in a second. But first, we need to stop for a message from our sponsor. Lexapol empowers first responders and public servants to best meet the needs of their residents safely and responsibly, serving more than 2 million public safety and government professionals in over 8,000 agencies and municipalities. Lexapol offers a range of solutions that includes policies, training, behavioral health resources, news and analysis, and grant assistance services for law enforcement, fire and rescue, EMS, local government, and other agencies dedicated to public safety. To learn more, visit lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. And we're back. Remember that uh, EMS One Stop is not only a podcast, but also a vlog. So not only can you hear us on the platform that you're listening to us on, 
You can also see us on YouTube. And the advantage of doing that is that uh, during the course of uh, discussions with my guests, we have visuals, charts, images, ready to convey what we're talking about. And obviously, uh, I'm talking to my guest, Jason Killins today, Chief Executive of the Welsh Amulet Service Trust. And so if you're watching us, then there are some fantastic slides and images that Jason and his team have provided. Uh, if you're listening to us, then go and click over onto YouTube. But all, always please make sure that you like and subscribe on the platform that you're listening to us on. So if you look at your phone right now, there's a little check mark in the top right-hand corner. If you click that, or if you're on YouTube, you hit the like and subscribe button. It means that, uh, A, we capture you, and B, you get notified when a new episode of EMS One Stop is published again. Almost uh, got that out in one in one take, Jason. So uh, talking to Jason Killens, we were having an amazing discussion before the break about sort of the breakdown of the services. Um, and, you know, you're doing what we all really want to do. We mentioned the Emergency Triage Treat and Transport Program, AT3, here in the US. The, the, the rug was pulled out from under that. It doesn't stop us doing these things, which is actually doing what you guys are really doing, which is tr giving the patient the treatment they need and not just the one-size-fits-all, one-stop-shop, you-call-we-haul. Uh, but, of course, this is a journey for you, as you were saying in the break. Yeah, it is very much a journey, Rob. I mean, you know, the, the, the traditional emergency ambulance service, a model that we've all been operating for decades now, you know, it is simply unsustainable going forwards, particularly here, you know, where we've got an ageing population. We know that, you know, an ageing population uh, lives longer with, uh, you know, uh, complex conditions, comorbidities in, in their communities, and they access emergent, urgent and emergency care more frequently. So that's leading to uh, increases in activity, and that activity is more complex. Um, so, so the current model of response uh, and convey to an emergency department is simply not sustainable. Um, and I'm really clear um, that the answer to the, uh, you know, the quality, the safety, the response time performance challenges we have here, particularly in Wales, is not about more double-staffed ambulances. It's about change and it's about innovating and transforming the way we deliver care we're not transport organisations anymore, uh, you know, which we were 20 and 30 years ago. Uh, we, do, we do transport, but increasingly we're providers of great clinical care in our communities. Uh, and it's that bit that we're looking to stretch and grow. Uh, so we provide better outcomes for our patients here in Wales um, and, and only convey them uh, to the emergency department when we really need to. And we think the solution to that is advanced practice in communities with our own people and others, you know, increasingly with a, a growing nursing workforce, we've got about 200 nurses which work for us now, predominantly in 111, but but also in in the 999 service too. Uh, and we see, you know, a, a growing multidisciplinary advanced practice clinical service uh, as the solution to those, you know, those challenges we've got. Excellent. So part of that journey, of course, is getting the appropriately trained, qualified, certified practitioner in role. And again, it's another heated, well, storming debate here in the US of degrees for medics. Okay, it's, there's certain parts of our world over here that say we can't afford to take the time to have a stand down to get everybody qualified, certified and a degree. There are others uh, that are absolutely saying that, yes, we need to have a degree level practitioner doing the uh, doing the job and now of course uh, for the last at least probably 15 years i would say that the uk and or england Wales, scotland ireland have gone down the, the the graduate program 
So what's the career pathway look like for someone that's going to go to a university and start their their life in ambulance services? Yeah, okay. So look, it's, it's a really good question, but I, I would just offer, I think there's a third way too, but okay. which, which is to do both. And perhaps I'll, I'll just unpack that a bit and explain. Yeah, please do. So, um, yeah, you're right. You're right. You know, for the last 15 or 20 years, predominantly recruitment of paramedics has been through the university route, you know, so, so we recruit uh, from universities, qualified paramedics with a degree. But uh, I, I, I would say this, I'm an advocate of this, you know, because right. I was a technician, I was an EMT, you know, uh, uh, there is, I think, a vocational pathway, which we must maintain um, to ensure we've got uh, workforces that are genuinely reflective of the communities that we serve. Because if you only recruit through the university route, there are some people in our communities which you automatically cut off because they can't afford to go to university they're not in the right geographical place to access the university they haven't got um you know the prerequisite education to enter university Uh, but they would make fantastic paramedics um you know and, and clinicians in our in our ambulance services so we maintain a vocational pathway to paramedic qualification as well so a technician can convert in service to a qualified paramedic with a degree. Now, so we support part-time release with one of our universities uh, to be able to uh, acquire that qualification over time. But, but you know, once they're a paramedic, the pathway is then the same uh, as it would be for a, uh, a direct entry paramedic, let me say. Um, and there's a number of routes they can go now. You know, so you know, when I joined, you know, nearly 30 years ago, you were a paramedic on the road or you were a paramedic in education you know, in, in training. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but of course, now you can be a paramedic on the road, you can be a senior paramedic on the road. So so that's uh, a higher pay band, supervisory responsibilities, slightly more skills. Here in Wales, you could be what we call a, a, a Cymru high acuity response unit paramedic. Uh, so these are people that are tasked kind of clues in the title to the, you know, to the more acute yeah. work, uh, particularly around uh, cardiac arrest, you know, uh, pit crew uh, kind of management of of those incidents. We've already seen, we've implemented that service in the last 12 months. We're already seeing improving ROSC rates coming out of that, which is great. Um, So you can be in education, you can be on the road as a senior paramedic or a a high acuity response unit paramedic. You can go into operational management and still be a, you know, a jobbing paramedic. You could go into our hazardous area response team and be a jobbing paramedic. Uh, you know, going to you know big fires, building collapses, entrapments, all that kind of stuff. Um, you could be a paramedic in our clinical support desk, in our contact centres, or in the one 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 service. And of course, increasingly, particularly post registration here in the UK, you know that's what you know now fifteen years ago, fifteen yep. or so mm-hmm. years ago, um, paramedics are now working in other bits of the national health service uh, and the private sector too. So traditionally. If you're a paramedic, your employer was an ambulance service. That's not necessarily the case anymore. We've got paramedics working in police custody suites, in emergency departments, uh, in in other bits of the NHS, in primary and community care as well. So um, for a degree educated paramedic, the opportunities are substantial now, whereas two decades ago, they weren't. Excellent. And I'm glad you qualified the direct entry route there, Jason. And of course, we must always uh, you know, reflect the population in which we serve. Um, we, we've started actually in the US a number of, uh, they call them earn while you learn um, programs. And uh, it's probably not on the scale of getting a full on degree, but of course, it's a start point. 
And yeah. so I'm I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, in terms of the other folk that support you, um, we mentioned that fire brigades don't have a full-time medical first response responsibility, but you have other types of responders that are also working in and around you and in Wales. We do, uh, and that, that picture's the same across the UK. It varies by service, but, but they certainly are. I mean, so here in Wales, we've got... Uh, probably just shy of a thousand volunteers. Uh, so these are community first responders. So these are people that we train, equip, uh, and activate to uh, to a certain codes within the MPDS determinants, and they respond within their communities to to those calls. They go in addition to an ambulance, um, but but they do respond and they provide a uh, great care. Uh, to to patients often arriving much quicker than than the traditional road ambulance because they're in the communities where the job uh, is occurring. You've mentioned fire services, so we've got co-responder schemes with the fire services here in Wales and across the UK. Uh, and in some services, London, where I used to work, uh, there are also co-responder schemes with the police uh, uh, where they respond to certain uh, types of calls, uh, certain categories of calls, and, and other services, ambulance services across the UK also have co-responder relationships with the military. Uh, so from military bases, we've got one here in Wales too, uh, where they also respond uh, in addition uh, to the to the traditional NHS ambulance. So a mixture of, of different services responding in communities to make those communities more resilient and ultimately get better outcomes for our patients. That's excellent. Uh, certainly in my old area in the UK, we had the military first responders and we had all of the remembering the firearms situation and who carries a gun in police departments around the UK, the armed response units that yeah. were area vehicles all were all trained in what we then called FPOS, first person on That's scene. Right. Uh, and so they were able to attend traffic collisions and obviously cardiac arrests, etc. I remember the day I went to a cardiac arrest to find a Nomex cladded suited full uh, tactical response unit with a defibrillator out. And I'm not yeah. sure if they caused more shock with their appearance or with the with the clinical treatment. But the point was they yeah. were there and they responded. And that was fantastic. Yeah. Um, in terms of uh, sort of other initiatives and things, you know, obviously, as a chief executive, I've known you for many years. Jason, you're a great visionary. You know, what's next for the service? Well, that's a really good, that's a really uh, leading, quite really good and leading question, Rob. So we've just taken the decision here uh, with our trust board. So I suppose I should just explain what a trust. Yes, board sorry. Is. Let me re let me let me go back one. Yes, of course, yeah. you have a degree of governance. You said you report to the minister, but yeah. of course, you have a board. Yes, we do. We do have a board. So the board is made up of executive directors, so salaried directors, and also. Uh, an equivalent number of non-executive directors who are drawn from the community with you know specific expertise so finance expertise corporate you know, governance expertise commercial expertise and so on and that trust board um, essentially is the, is the peak governance committee if you like of the organization to make sure that we this we i uh, and my uh, direct reports as the uh, executive team you know discharge our functions properly we have good governance processes in place we spend public money wisely those kind of things uh, but we've just agreed with our trust board that um, when our medical director uh, retires at the end of this year we will not replace him uh, now we'll be the first ambulance service in the UK not to have a medical director on their peak governance trust board uh, instead here uh, uh, we will have our senior clinical leadership provided by our executive director of paramedicine. Uh, we're the first ambulance service in the UK to have that role on the board. Uh, and through our executive director of nursing, 
and quality and safety. And we've taken that view um, simply because the paramedic profession has developed, as we've been discussing uh, uh, during this during this session, it's developed over the last two decades to the point now where we believe uh, we've got sufficiently experienced senior clinicians in the paramedic workforce that are able to provide that you know, senior level governance, leadership and direction for our clinical strategy. We'll be able to pull on the support from doctors, uh, medical doctors, uh, as we need it. We'll still have access to medical doctors as an organisation. But I think, uh, and the board thinks, it's an important signal and message to our paramedic workforce uh, that they, you know, the, the glass ceiling, if you like, Rob, is broken yep. now. Yeah. Yep. And paramedics who join us, you know, 21, 22 from university can absolutely see a pathway through to senior leadership, to a director on the board, um, and ultimately to jobs like mine uh, as a paramedic, if that's what they aspire to. Um, so we're really pleased uh, that we've been able to make this kind of exciting step. Um, and I'm not, you know, I'm not being disparaging to the the, the the you know medical doctors support over many many years to to the ambulance service but we've reached a point in maturity we think now yeah. in the paramedic profession where we can do that i don't think it's disparaging at all in the last 20 or so minutes we've discussed and described the career pathway and the educational requirements even if you've come in from from street level emt level through to as you say your your desk you know it's yeah. one of those where do you see yourself in 20 years i see yourself sitting in jason's chair um, so you've described that pathway and that route to the top. So it probably makes excellent sense that now you you have, as you say, come of age and it's yeah. time to actually have your people leading. Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely right. We've got a great our director of paramedics and a guy called Andy Swinburne was a job in paramedic many years ago. He's worked in three or four services across the UK. He's an excellent guy. Got loads of you know of passion uh, and vision, not only for the workforce, uh, so individual clinicians, but also for for the service and, and how we can deliver care in, in a much better, smarter way, closer to home for, for our patients. So um, it's an exciting journey we're going on. Wonderful. And so I'm going to ask my classic ending question, Jason. Is there anything I've forgotten to ask or anything you need to tell us? Uh, well, um, I, I don't think so, Rob. Uh, we've... Uh, We've we've uh, been through a bit of a tough time here in the last you know three years as as most organisations right. have. To and I don't think there is any care. any EMS system ambulance service exactly. in the world that hasn't. Honestly, yeah, absolutely right, uh, absolutely right. But as we've come out of that, you know what we've realised is our people have done fantastic stuff over the last two and three years. Um, you know, taking personal risk and placing themselves you know in danger as our people always do, and we're extremely proud of everything that they've done over the last three years but now is the time as we emerge from that pandemic particularly with you know the legacy of the pandemic across our health system um, and that increased activity and the challenges around risk and safety now is the time uh, to grasp uh, the transformational agenda and set our organizations up for the next decade or two uh, with new models of service delivery you know what that's inspirational jason because you know what i just heard there is that you took the, the the pandemic and obviously the lessons that were identified during that and said hey we now need to shape ourselves going forward and that's actually something that the us can take from this discussion if you take nothing else obviously we are busily switching off things that were on during the public health emergency saying that's it that's the end of that Sounds like you guys, you and yours, are actually taking that and stepping up, not stepping back. And I commend you for that. Thank you. 
So that's uh, another edition of uh, EMS One Stop. Of course, Jason, I know you're an active social media person. So how can we follow you and, of course, your organisation? Well, you can get me and the organisation on, I was going to say Twitter, but it's X now, isn't it? Uh, I, so... I haven't quite got my head around X yet. So, uh, yes, yes, <laughs> so X you Twitter. Get, you can get me on X Twitter at Jason Killens <laughs> uh, and the organisation at Welsh Ambulance. Okay, so uh, at Jason Killens, uh, thank you, sir. And uh, I hope that we can continue to follow the success and the progress of the Welsh Helmet Service Trust. Uh, I know that uh, you are a very visible guy and uh, and I will stay in touch and follow up. And perhaps uh, in, a, in, a, in a wee while, you can come back and give us a progress report. Very happy to. Very happy to do so. Okay, so that uh, was, as I said, another edition of uh, EMS One Stop. Uh, thank you very much to uh, Jason Killens. Thank you very much to his team. If you're watching on YouTube, the amazing graphics and visuals that you've been looking at are courtesy of Jason's hardworking team there. Um, so until next time, uh, I've been Rob Lawrence. Don't forget you can follow me on LinkedIn. Just look me up or on Twitter at UKRobL1. I'm there. If you have any comments or observations, please uh, leave them in the chat or the comments box on the platform that you're listening or watching us on. So until next time, this has been EMS One Stop. Bye for now. <laughs>